Today's episode is sponsored by Podcorn, an online marketplace connecting podcasters to excellent sponsorship opportunities. Podcorn is the ideal marketplace for podcasters seeking to monetize their shows and brands seeking to get their message in front of large and highly engaged audiences. As a podcast host myself, Podcorn has been instrumental in helping to support this show so that I can continue producing it for years to come. Through Podcorn, I've directly connected with brands whose messages can be heard in episodes of the podcast. No matter how large or small your podcast is, Podcorn will connect you with opportunities right for your audience. If you're a fellow podcaster, follow the link in the description of this episode to start monetizing your show today. And a huge thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. Scandinavians played many different roles during the Viking Age. Some were farmers, others craftsmen, traders, hunters, fishermen, or storytellers. At any given time, a person may have found themselves playing several of these roles at once. Yet, the job of a warrior was fundamental to Viking Age society. Whether on foreign battlefields in search of plunder, or familiar lands in search of honor and glory, the Vikings implemented an array of battle tactics against their dynamic list of enemies. From shield walls to fortified encampments, and dawn attacks to wedge formations, the Northmen of the early Middle Ages employed deliberate strategies to defeat their foes. Joining me to discuss Viking battle tactics is Kim Hjardar, a Norwegian historian and author. Kim holds a master's degree in Viking and medieval studies from the University of Oslo and is the co-author of the very popular book, Vikings at War. Before we get into my conversation with Kim, I want to tell you that we've partnered with Medieval Warfare magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is the highest quality magazine dedicated to weapons and warriors of the Middle Ages. Every issue features specially commissioned artwork and original maps that bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. 
You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kim about Viking battle tactics. Kim Hiardar, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Kim, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast because our topic of conversation today is very exciting indeed. It's Viking battle tactics. Now, we know that warfare was an integral part of the Viking Age. And I know some scholars and historians will be keen to reference the fact that relatively little is known about the battle tactics of the Vikings. However, I know from sort of my own research that we don't know nothing. So I'm keen to discuss with you today what we do know about Viking battle tactics. And perhaps the best place to begin is by taking a look at those early raids, those small-scale, coastal, early Scandinavian incursions into Western Europe, most notably, during the early Viking Age. So, Kim, when we look at those early Viking raids during the you know late 8th century, early 9th century, what are some of the tactics that were implemented by the Vikings? Yes, of course, uh, early raiding uh, activity differs a lot from like uh, more organized warfare later on in the, in the period. But what uh, seemed to be like uh, a very common uh, feature is like these very small groups, maybe uh, a ship's crew or maybe two ship's crew uh, traveling together. The tactics uh, seems to be to uh, approach uh, a target very early in the morning, perhaps before the daily routine of the of the intended uh, victims are, are are established, arriving by sea, of course, that's maybe some of the most uh, important battle tactics of the early uh, Viking Age, because people in Europe uh, in those days didn't fear the sea in, in that way because they thought it was uh, impassable, or most people did. And so when the Vikings arrived by sea due to the sail and the oar technology and the ship's technology, it came as a big surprise on, on the coastal uh, settlements. And, uh, of course, a lot of uh, monasteries was uh, established along coastal areas in both in Ireland, in France uh, and Britain. They became uh, the early targets of these raids. So a typical, uh, as we can read from some sources and from uh, and the sources here are, of course, mainly annals and uh, the written sources from Europe. But we have also some uh, runestones that talk about what is honorable or not. But we could think in Norway, after the sowing season, people will get together in what we call fjellag, also a, a sort of business adventure. Uh, maybe it's a local uh, chieftain or uh, some local farmers that uh, put together a ship and they traveled on a plundering season, trying to make it back before harvest, of course. Maybe they would um, rely on uh, reports or knowledge of other people who has been in the area before, picking out uh, targets or in, in the early raids. Uh, it must be like a, a lot of chance encounters with, uh, with the different settlements and monasteries along the coast. But uh, what it seems to be quite uh, similar uh, in these raids is that um, they approach by sea early in the morning, try to attack a settlement or a monastery with as much uh, noise as possible, 
maybe clashing of weapons, yelling, maybe quick killing or two just to subdue the population. We have uh, information that several groups uh, may split up and some try to surround uh, the settlement and prevent uh, people from escaping. Uh, it was very important to take uh, people alive, of course, because uh, they would uh, take slaves. This was often uh, combined uh, for slave raids and uh, raids to look for valuables. There is a, actually, <laughs> actually there, is a, there is a modern um, military word uh, used in the Iraq war called shock and awe, I think it's, it's called, where you try to subdue your enemy with as much initial violence and, uh, and noise as possible. Because we are only talking about uh, maybe 30, 40 people in the, in the early raids, uh, uh, a normal raiding party or a ship's crew. And it would be quite easy, actually, if the local populace uh, got time to mount a defense to, to repel such an attack. So so if, the, if this attack is supposed to be successful, they have to be carried out very violently in the beginning, so to subdue will of the populace to, to fight back. And after you have herded together the population, if you had time, you would start separating those who was eligible for slave market, maybe young people, women, uh, young children, young boys, young girls, elderly, the sick or mature men is not very sought after in the slave markets, and they probably were released after the raid was uh, conducted. And then you also have uh, a search for valuables. We have examples that places are uh, repeatedly attacked after a very short while because they were returning to surprise the inhabitants. If they had got time to hide any valuables, they would return shortly after and, and surprise them when they're bringing the valuables back. And we have also ex- a lot of examples that they are digging up the floors of monasteries or churches to, to look for valuables. And these raids would not take a very long time, I guess a couple of hours. And then they would uh, retreat to back to the boats with uh, the booty and the slaves they wanted, and then they would disappear. So it's like a very, very um, fast, very aggress- aggressive, and a very traumatized experience, I would guess, for the people who became the subjects. It also seems that if there are, and of course not every raid is, uh, <laughs> is going well, we have uh, lots of examples of raids that are going really, really bad, and the Vikings are, are repelled and often killed, and the ships are sunk or the ships are, are taken from them. Like the second known English attack at Jarrow, of course, went really, really bad. After the first one at Lindisfarne went really well. If they would meet an, uh, an organized opponent, it seems like the Viking had these dispersal tactics. They would uh, split up and uh, disperse, not facing a superior enemy. Of course, uh, in, uh, in Europe at that day, they were used to fighting uh, side by side because you are more protected. And if you are any like a uh, feudal lord who would uh, split up his troops to follow a Viking raiding party individually, is, uh, would probably lose because Vikings, they preferring actually to, in this early period to fight man to man and they were very well trained in man to man fighting. So if they kept your forces together, the Vikings would probably just disperse, meet up at a designated point later on and just sail away. So it's very hard to, to repel these, uh, these attacks, uh, actually. Well, one thing you mentioned, you mentioned the Viking longship, and that is really sort of an interesting piece of equipment, or one might even say a piece of weaponry in and of itself. The Viking longship enabled the Viking Age, as you well know, Kim. So I'm wondering, 
Could you tell us a little bit more about the Viking longship? I mean, certainly contemporary Western European societies, for example, had watercraft. Why was the Viking longship so special? Well, I think the main feature is that, of course, the, the ship, ship technology is uh, in many ways more advanced in, in Europe, of course. Uh, large ships, uh, ships that take many more men, more cargo, carry more sails and stuff like that. But the Viking ships has a unique uh, property. They are very shallow. They have a very shallow keel and uh, they are multifunctional. It can be rolled very easy and, it, and you can use sail when necessary. And it doesn't actually need any established ports at all. While European ships or English ships, they are depending on having ports to anchor or to function. Viking ships, they can be beached on any beach. They could be sailed, they rode up rivers. So they are a very more versatile uh, sort of uh, naval craft than the contemporary ships in Europe. And that's, that's, I think that's the main force or the main advantage that the Viking ships has. They can actually be, you can use them in, in any terrain. So uh, you don't have to land a raiding party in established ports, which would be dangerous because ports are often protected and guarded. And that's also why the defense against the Viking ship is, is so difficult because you, you, you can't really know where an attack would occur. So it could be rolled into a very uh, shallow water. Uh, it also has this ability to, to lower the mast and uh, a raiding party would probably lower the mast, taking down the sail before they came within uh, view of uh, from the shore. And uh, it's a very the ship is not not very big, of course. You can't see it uh, very good from uh, from afar. And they could uh, row very fast after the sail was down, and they could surprise uh, the inhabitants or any guards that was uh, out uh, on watch. So the ship definitely enabled uh, uh, the Vikings to carry out such raids. And of course, it has become the symbol of the Viking Age, and with with very good reason. Indeed it has. Well, Kim, we know from historical sources that Viking warriors, Viking warbands clashed with contemporary medieval armies, and certainly we'll talk about some of those great battles in a little while here. But we also know that the Vikings were after plunder and loot primarily. Mm. For this reason, and this is something you discuss in your book, Vikings at War, the Vikings are known to have constructed fortresses so that they might be defended against a direct assault from their enemies. I know that there are fortresses in Denmark known to have been constructed by Harold Bluetooth. Lately, I've been doing a great deal of research about the Viking Age in the Frankish Empire, the Mm -hmm. Frankish realm, and I know that the Vikings there too would construct fortified camps so that they might be protected against a direct assault from the Frankish armies, notably Frankish cavalry squadrons. Could you tell us a little bit about these Viking fortresses? Sort of what did they yeah. do for the Vikings? Yes, well, uh, of course, the, um, the, technique, the, the, fort- the technique of building fortresses is something that uh, was very well known, of course, in Europe. Uh, and Vikings, they don't have the ability to build stone uh, fortresses like they did in Roman age or, or did in the medieval age. And all their uh, defensive uh, structures uh, has somewhat similar uh, building techniques. They are uh, built by 
maybe a timber structure and it's turf and earth rampage and with maybe um, a wooden palisade uh, on top. And it is always circular in shape, maybe a round fort like in Denmark, but that's not very common actually outside Scandinavia. More more common is like the round fort that has or a half circle of pipe structure with maybe a river or or some water uh, at the backside. Especially the early forts are probably designed to protect the ships or the fleet. And it has this word uh, long fort, uh, which is called in the sources, which nobody really know exactly what means, but uh, it probably uh, is some kind of uh, defensive structure who is designed to protect uh, the longships. And you see this in Ireland, you have a lot of these traces of these uh, long forts. And you know, Dublin was originally one, and uh, Waterford, and many other places. And also we have a very famous one in England, in Repton, uh, where they also uh, used the local church as part of the, of the rampage. In front of these uh, earth structures, you would have uh, a ditch, Maybe uh, it was uh, fortified with uh, spikes to prevent uh, an attacker from crossing easy. And this uh, could be built uh, quite uh, fast, especially in England. Uh, during the, the 9th century, we have the great heathen army. They relied in very much upon building such structures and overwintering in them or use them as safe places if the English are catching up with them. And they are finding more and more of these defensive structures around, and maybe they were quite common, actually, especially outside Scandinavia. When we talk about sort of the proper battles of the Viking Age, especially the great battles toward the end of the Viking Age, there's so many directions that conversation could go. But if one is to highlight a few battles that provide good examples of tactics used by the Vikings, what might those battles be? And what were the tactics used? Well, you know, there's so many battles uh, fought in the Viking Age. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And just in England, we know of more than 60 uh, different uh, battles. Of course, there are some very famous ones, like the Battle of Brandenburg or the Battle of Clontar for the Battle of Stanford Bridge or, or some battles like that. And those are, of course, um, quite late battles. And uh, those are, uh, especially if you have the battles of Stanford Bridge, of course, you have a central king, uh, Harald Hardrada, who has brought his forces and his, his uh, army is, is, is uh, a very homogeneous army. It consists of uh, troops loyal to only him. In the early Viking Age, you have the, another type of army system called the lid-based system, where independent chieftains with their... Uh, Retinue and their followers would uh, join up with others and they would uh, like choose a central leadership and they would fight together for a while until uh, a chieftain chose to withdraw or travel back or, or something. And new, new leaders will always join this army. And the Great Hidden Army existed for more than 40 years and it would be impossible for army to exist out in the field for 40 years if it wasn't replenished all the time. And uh, so battle strategy is uh, somewhat different concerning what type of era or what type of army we are talking about. Of course, a lot of the famous battles from uh, England, and especially the Great Heathen Army battles. The Great Heathen Army, they fought a lot of battles in uh, Britain. And of course, they, they had some initial success, but um, 
they had this uh, main strategy of always attacking the leader that went for the king. And sometimes they managed to kill the, uh, the British king, but I think the Vikings believed uh, by killing off the leader, the will to fight would uh, diminish because that, that's what they were used to from back home because a warrior's loyalty is always to the person and not to the institution. And uh, the Vikings, I think they didn't really understand that about the Europeans before it was a little bit too late. You can't fight uh, a traditional Scandinavian Viking battle in Britain or in France because the rules are different uh, in the way that if you kill off the leader in Scandinavia, the battle would be over because all loyalty and all prestige and whatever you're fighting for is always connected to the, to the one that you are serving. But in, uh, in Christian Europe, you are, uh, these countries and the kingship are institutionalized. So if you kill the king, there's a crown prince or there's someone else ready to step in and people are more loyal to the, the kingship than the king itself. Okay, let's have some examples. Um, there is, uh, of course, the battles of the great heathen army. In 871, 870 and 871, you have a, a lot of uh, battles in Britain, like Englefield, Reading, the Ashdown, Basing, Merontum and Wilton. And the Vikings lost some, and they, they won some of those. But initially, they had this, uh, this pincer uh, movement strategy, because the lead-based armies are consisting of uh, more, it's more independent in, his, uh, in, his way, uh, in the way they can fight. Because there are different leaders, they can take uh, action instantaneously. You're not uh, not relying upon a centralized, like one leader that's giving the orders. They are used to fight uh, in uh, in smaller numbers, and so they can split up the army. And they can, if they are uh, able to uh, do this without the enemy discovering what they're doing, they can surround the English army and they can take it in a pincer movement. And they've won a lot of battles this way. The lead-based army system is, is very good for uh, individual fighting, also groups of men fighting under uh, their own banner or under their own leadership, but of course uh, inconsistent with, a, with an overall strategy. This is also a two-edged sword, because when the English kings realized uh, the, uh, that the Vikings were fighting this way, and also they realized that the Vikings had this uh, idea of always going for the leader, they turned this uh, strategy against the Vikings and they met them on the same terms as the English kings split up their army and uh, faced different uh, Viking divisions. And they also went for the leaders and Vikings started to lose a lot of battles uh, after the English turned this type of strategy against them, especially during the Great Hidden Army period. But later on, we have, of course, the greater uh, armies and, and they're unified under one single king. And um, uh, <laughs> an example, <laughs> very good example of that. I just uh, wrote a new book, of course, <laughs> always a new book. <laughs> it's called The Vikings' Greatest Battles, and it's dwelt into 25 of the, not actually the biggest battles, but maybe some big battles, maybe some weird battles, battles using different types of tactics, some battles that maybe not would consider battles in our uh, some traditional uh, way of thinking of battles, and also from the beginning of the Viking Age and until like the very, very late uh, Viking Age. What's similar in all those battles is, is the system of fighting, especially the, having the troops lined up in what we call a line uh, or a phalanx, maybe, could be a, a, a word we could use. Of course, these are more or less a defensive structure, of course. Uh, it's, very, it's not very easy to, to move large 
lines of men across a battlefield in an order and face an opponent in that way. That would not work very good, but the system was anyway to have these lines uh, where maybe shields are overlapping, where you have um, maybe five or six men deep, uh, maybe more, uh, depending on if, if, how many men you were commanding, if you had to have a thin line or you have to have a thick line. Of course, the best was to have a thick line and you could uh, have uh, maybe three men every second meter with uh, overlapping shields. Those were very hard uh, shield wall to penetrate for an attacking uh, army. And behind that, you would have spear, uh, people with spears that could, or long axes that could prevent uh, the enemy from getting too close. This was not very effective. We went for an attack in an attack situation. It was more a defensive situation. But also, the Vikings uh, had this strategy of fighting in in groups, not like single person combat. You know, I think that uh, the Vikings uh, are, of course, part of the Germanic uh, last of the Germanic tribes, if you can call it that. And the Germanic people they encountered uh, the Romans, and in the beginning they would fight in large open formations, attacking very showing personal prowess and attacking the Romans head on. This was a disaster, of course. The only way they could kill off the Romans if they was able to ambush them. So I think the, the Vikings had this uh, collective memory when they were conducting warfare in the Viking Age. They knew that this was not the way to do it and they had to have a more close line combat if there was not supposed to be overrun or, or, or killed off very easily. If you are to break one of those lines, you have to use a different type of strategy. And what seems to be a very common strategy is something which the sources has referred to as a swine fulking or a swine phalanx or a, something like a group of men with a point that are designed to like break the line. Try that in real life. It would not work very well if you have one guy in front and then you have two and then you have four and six and they would attack. This would just crunch against a very good defensive line. So, so this wouldn't work. So what the swine filking probably was, was originally a square formation, maybe 40 by 40 men or 20 by 20 men. What you could maybe you could call it a column, an independent column. And this could correspond to a ship's crew or a couple of ship's crew because you know, those those guys there are they are used to fighting together. They know each other and they could uh, use that to their advantage. So you can have uh, maybe um, 10 columns that would make out a line, a defensive line, but then these columns could easily turn into a very offensive uh, weapon. And uh, you can use this column to, to break uh, an opponent line. And what would happen is that this would like run, of course, towards the, the, the opposing line. And uh, in doing that run, uh, the sides would normally naturally hold a little bit back. And from a spectator's view, it was, looks like it is a pointed column. But it's, this would have a great uh, breakthrough force. Uh, and I think that's what it really happened. And uh, people later sources uh, has called it a, a pig's snout uh, column. Uh, because uh, they thought it was a, a pointed column, but originally just a, a square column. So this seems to be um, a very preferred way to, to do an attack in these columns. Uh, we also have, of course, the, the shield wall and uh, and um, shield. It's hard to find a really good English word for it, but uh, a shield uh, in Norwegian is called, or in Norse, called a skjoldborg, more like a shield. Castle of some sort is a defensive structure. 
the shield wall is like uh, if a line is is standing to to take uh, on an attacking column, they would form a shield wall. If this column is maybe surprised, this 20 by 20 man column or 40 by 40 man column is surprised open open, they could form what we would maybe call a shield wall. It would look a little bit like the Roman tortoise column, but of course it's it's not uh, anything near uh, a Roman column in action because it doesn't have any offensive capabilities. It's just a defensive structure. So it's, this seems to be uh, something that would use if they are an attack from missile attack or if they are caught uh, out in the open, they will form this shield castle structure with the shield in front. And of course, uh, the central warriors will have, have the shield up above their heads as this look like a, a massive shield, like a tortoise structure. So the line and the offensive column and the shield castle it seems to be like uh, the uh, strategies that the Vikings would, would use a lot, especially in the uh, 9th century and uh, definitely in the 10th century. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, Kim Hjardar, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And uh, good luck. Uh, it's uh, the Viking topic. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a very fortunate topic because there's also seems to be a huge amount of interest out there for everything that has to do with Vikings. And uh, actually, I was, uh, I think, uh, in Japan, there's going to be a big Viking TV show uh, now because they went just been in Norway and doing some filming. So, so no, it's, it's, a, it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon. And uh, I'm very happy because uh, that means that I can continue writing books and, uh, and reaching out and uh, do what I love most, and that's to talk about and, and write about the Vikings. Indeed, we're both very fortunate. Well, thank you so much again, Kim. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in my honest opinion, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much again for listening. Please join us here again for another episode. <laughs>